Hello, and welcome to Wolfram and Cast, an Angel Retrospective. I am Stephen Yunkin. And I am Carrie Labach. In this podcast, we'll be doing a deep dive discussion about the WB show Angel that ran from 1999 to 2004. We have chosen to focus on Angel because as fans of the show, we feel that even 20 plus years after the show premiered, it has themes and ideas that are worth discussing. So Stephen and I met in a Buffy fan group on Facebook, and right away I enjoyed a sense of humor. Uh, We got the idea for the podcast after a really interesting conversation about the Angel finale, where another user had posted how much they didn't like the finale, saying that it ended on a cliffhanger. And Stephen and I got into a really great discussion about how each character's arc ended in a way that felt true to their character and the overall theme of the show. And we kind of realized that Angel the series can often be misunderstood and underappreciated as a piece of television. So we decided to create this podcast as a way to show Angel some much-needed love. Though... Never so much love that it'll lead to perfect happiness. Each episode will examine thoroughly one episode of the show, but we will touch on greater themes and character arcs from the entire series. So as a warning, a spoiler alert is in effect. We will spoil not just that episode, but episodes further in the series as well. And during the course of our show, we will review what the show was about, what worked, what didn't, and themes that ran throughout the episode. We have also planned some fun segments in which we'll highlight some of our favorite quotable lines, some unforgettable kills, poke fun at some dated fashion and technology, and other notable items in the episode. As an editorial comment, though, we would like to note that we will not be discussing Joss Whedon as a person, only as a director and writer. We do not condone abusive behavior in any form, but we're not here to evaluate the actions and behaviors of him or any of the other individuals involved with Joss's shows or movies. We love these works of fiction and want to discuss the stories, themes, and performances outside of any real-life drama surrounding these shows. For this episode, though, we would like to basically introduce ourselves to you in terms of who we are, how we became fans of Angel, and our general views on Joss Whedon's other television efforts. So, Carrie, how long have you been watching Angel, and how did you become a fan of the show? So, I'm actually relatively new to the fan base. I started watching Angel in 2020 and kind of got me through some of my quarantine blues. I watched Buffy first. I had started that in like the end of 2019 before the quarantine. I was recovering from a surgery. It was it was a show I'd always meant to watch. I'd seen the first couple of episodes when I was in middle school and I liked it, but being the youngest sibling in my family, I rarely got to pick what was on TV and then I, you know, got busy with life and kind of forgot about it until I was like, oh, I need something new to watch, and I like fantasy shows, and I've always heard good things about Buffy, so I watched it, and basically, like, I watched the whole first season in one week, and by Prophecy Girl, I was hooked. Like, the the line where she's like, Giles, I'm 16, I don't want to die, I'm like, oh, oh, this went from being just a funny, (laughs) quippy little show to, like, there's real serious stakes and emotions, and like the acting between Angel, Giles, and Buffy in that scene where it's just like Angel's ashamed and Giles is ashamed and Buffy is just terrified. I'm like, 
okay, I'm a fan for life. This is this is going to happen. And so for Angel, it was just an extension of that. Like I pretty much, as soon as I finished Buffy, I, I was like, okay, I'm not as big of a fan of Angel or Cordelia or Wesley on Buffy, but I knew it was a continuation of this universe that I loved. And I will get to later, I liked other Whedon things. So I'm like, I'm gonna watch it. And I think for me, it was by like, episode three was definitely a huge one for me because of the addition of Spike and Oz, who are two of my favorite characters in the Buffyverse. But I would say once Wesley joined the cast is when I really started to feel like it was gelling as a show. Yeah, for me... Well, first of all, in regards to the line that you were using, only 16, I'm too young to die. That one, I think a lot of fans would agree, is from the episode Prophecy Girl. That was probably their first truly strong episode. I mean, they had some decent ones before then, such as Angel, which introduced who Angel was as a vampire, and a few other episodes. But that was the first one where they established the quality that this show could obtain. Now, for me, though, I had started off watching the movie when it was at the theater, with the version with Christy Swanson. And I'm very familiar with the movie. That I watched a lot, because we were, me and my sister were big 90210 fans, so, like, Luke Perry was a huge draw for the movie. But then when the the show came out, she's like, Luke Perry's not in this. Why are we watching it? I'm like, (laughs) well, then... (laughs) In fact, the character wasn't even in the series. Not even just the actor. The character didn't even show up. For me, though, I was never that crazy about the movie. Only person I really liked at all in there was Rutger Hauer as the vampire. And because I've always been a fan of Rutger Hauer, and he was decent, but the rest of the movie I just found to be too campy, too silly, and too over-the-top in its humor. Camp is definitely like, you either like it or you don't. Yeah, and I like it in certain cases. There are certain movies I love it a lot in, because, for example, one of my favorite comedy movies of all time is Airplane, which is very silly in its humor, but I can watch that one endlessly, quoting it the entire movie and laugh hard. But for Buffy, it just didn't seem to work. I And granted, humor is always... A relative thing, as you said, whether sometimes you like it, sometimes you don't. As I said, for me, just did not work at all. So when the series came out on TV, well, I had seen good movies made into good TV series, such as the movie MASH made into the TV series and a few others. I liked Christy Swanson's portrayal, but she was very Valley Girl. It was very 90s. It, you know, does not have that timelessness that Buffy does. Oh, no. In this case, there's absolutely no contest. Sarah's performance is worlds beyond what Christy gave to it, because Christy, she gave no depth to the character, where Sarah, even in the pilot episode in Welcome to the Hellmouth, almost from the beginning in her opening scene where she meets Giles, she manages to convey a teenage girl attitude, but yet with some depth and shading to her character, which made her a lot more interesting, as well as also being funny at the same time. Her performance, not even close to Christie's, because hers is worlds better. But the thing is, though, I came into that show years later, because as I had mentioned, there were 
good movies made of good TV shows. There were bad TV series based on good movies. But I had never seen a good TV series based on a bad movie. As I said, I was not that curious about the movie. I had no desire to watch a TV series version of it either. And I remember reading years later an interview with Joss Whedon where he had commented that he was also equally disappointed with the movie because it did not turn out the way he had hoped because he had hoped for the movie to be more like the TV series, having light humor and quippy lines, but also a darker edge to it. And as a note to fans, if you want to read or at least see his version of what he hoped it to be. There was a comic book adaptation years ago called Buffy the Origin, which is his essentially his screenplay being adapted in a comic book form, and it is very different at points in terms of the tone. The general plot is the same, but the tone is very different. It is more equivalent to what we got in the TV series than what we had on the movie screen. I hesitated watching it, for some time, even though Entertainment Weekly and USA Today repeatedly praised the show. Entertainment Weekly had a huge article during the second season interviewing David Boreanaz, Juliet Landau, and James Marsters about the triangle between the three characters. And USA Today, in their What to Watch segment, showcased it almost religiously every single week, saying, you need to watch Buffy, you need to watch Buffy. But I still hesitated. But then it was the episode Bad Girls in the third season, the one that ended with Faith killing the mayor's assistant. Great episode. Oh, yes. Now, the scene that actually got me was... About two-thirds of the way through there, it was a scene where the mayor was becoming invincible. It was the ritual he was doing, and the vampire was released from the cage and sliced his skull in two, and then it melded together in what is now admittedly very bad CGI, but... At the time! Yeah, yeah. But actually, what got me was a screenshot of it where it showed his to-do list of what to do that day. Plumber Union... Call temp agency, become invincible, meeting with PTA, haircut. Right <laughs> in the middle of all these other Monday tasks is become invincible. And I started laughing. I said, that's clever. That's funny. That caught me off guard. Now, even though I was didn't know what was really going on, because once again, I had not watched any of the shows. I didn't know who the mayor was. I didn't know who Faith was. I barely know who Buffy was, but I still was interested enough in it that I did stick with the series and kept watching it and really liking it because, in my opinion, third season is arguably their best season, and especially in terms of overall plot arc. So I kept with it, and then later on, I got the Watcher's Guide, which was the official episode guide for the series, where it had summaries of the episodes and other details. I picked that up as well as getting the videotapes of the show and started watching those and becoming big fan of it. And from as, that point on, I kept po- with the show to the end. Yes. As a point of interest, were they VHSs or DVDs? VHSs. I was nice. old school. Nice. <laughs> I know that you said videotapes and I'm like, oh yeah, you got one of those big box sets. Love oh it. yes. Yeah. I had those for years. And then also years later, I had gone off of eBay, a copy of the original pilot of it. The one that you can now find nowadays on YouTube, where it had Riff Regan as Willow. Note to fans, if you haven't watched it, look for it on YouTube because it is interesting, first of all, to see how much of it he did keep for the actual pilot because it still had 
Sarah, Anthony Stewart Head, Nicholas Brandon, as well as Julie Benz in the episode in their same roles. And most of the dialogue for their scenes is kept intact for what we saw on TV. But as I said, it cut out Angel and the Master, and it's a lot shorter. And then also the dusting effect is even more crude than what we saw on TV. And yeah, it's, which makes sense because they wouldn't have done as much in post since it was just the test pilot. Oh, yeah. They were just doing this trying to sell the show. And also what is really notable, and for people who have seen it, Baiting Point is the use of a different actress for Willow. Because, as I said, they had an actress named Riff Regan who has not acted really since she did that. And she gave a even more passive take, in my opinion, on Willow than what Allison gave. Because Allison played her as quiet, but not weak. Whereas Riff, when I watched it, actually played her as a lot more of a weak character, a lot more browbeaten. I would agree with that. I would also say that they definitely beefed up Willow's lines where she had that adorable energy as opposed yes. to just shy. Like, I, I always laugh. One of her first lines to Xander where she tells him to go to the library for something and he's like, the library? And she's like, you know, where the books live. Okay. And like, it always gives me a little giggle. Like, such a, a great Willow line. And Allison Hannigan is is just amazing. I, uh, well, Stephen, you already know this, that one of my other favorite shows is How I Met Your Mother. And... Allison Hannigan, obviously, is one of the characters on that show, but the reason that she is the character she is, um, How I Met Your Mother, is based off of the two creators and one of the creators' wives, and one of the creators' wives was a huge Buffy fan and only would sign off on a character based off of her if they could get Allison Hannigan to play her. Oh, yeah. So, you know, she's just, she's a treasure. And Well, and that's why, like... In the early seasons, they actually have her as being the damsel so much um, mm -hmm. because there was a rule in the writer's room where if you want the audience to cry, make Willow cry. Yes. And you could tell that Joss was especially fond of the character and the actress in particular because it was in an interview. He said, the one person I will never, ever kill is Willow. <laughs> never. <laughs> and he says, because I like Allie too much. <laughs> And you could tell that throughout the show. No, she was the one. I mean, he killed off Buffy a couple of times. Twice, but, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But Willow, never. And it was because he genuinely liked her as an actress. And that's also why she showed up in Angel, as we'll discuss when we get to those episodes, because she worked very well in those shows and that show as well. So speaking of Angel, I think I, I cut you off a little bit there, or at least your train of thought. So what you watched Angel from the beginning, or where did you jump in? Yes. When they announced that, as I mentioned, I was watching Buffy live. And so as a note to fans, this one actually turned into a bit of a spoiler because during the episode Graduation Day Part 1, one of the commercials they showed was a trailer, was a teaser trailer for Angel which is a bit of a spoiler because Graduation Day Part 1 ends on a cliffhanger of will Angel survive because he's just been shot with a poison arrow by Faith. So now you see a thing saying, oh, by the way, he's going to be in his own show come fall. As a result, as a fan, you're thinking, 
well, okay, well, I guess he lives then. So yeah. He's going off to his own show. Thanks, WB. I and, mean, I, yeah. I get that they're trying to, like, promote a show, but that is a bummer. They should have waited until at least he, like, recovered in the second part of that episode to show that trailer. Well, that was twice that WB did that to the fans because the second time was during Buffy's final episode, The Chosen where Spike sacrifices himself to save the entire world. They leaked out that, by the way, Spike's showing up in the season five of Buffy. I'm sorry, of Angel. And so, once again, fans are going with, okay, we just had this huge moment when Spike dies, and we know he's coming back. So, okay, so I guess we're not that distraught that he died, because we know he's coming back anyway. So, on that... Now, yeah, Grand, it, it kind of undercuts because that was that was a big, great hero moment. Oh, and- it was! It was a it was a huge moment, and it, as you said, it undercut it. Now, granted, Angel, and we'll discuss this when we get to those episodes, handled it very well in terms of how they brought him back. That was handled very well, but all the same, though, it would have been nice to at least think for a moment. Ah, a great character in Buffy died. Not. Uh, okay, well, I guess he'll be back anyway, so who cares <laughs> on that? Now, anyways, when I had heard that Angel was being brought in as a TV series, I was actually optimistic about it, whereas I can see him just as a brooding boyfriend is limiting, but he had enough of a strength of interest of character that gave me hope that, okay, this might work as a character. In fact, I remember discussing with a friend saying, I'm actually optimistic about the show because it will be interesting to see him on his own without the other Buffy gang surrounding him having to lead a show because this was his first leading role they ever had. And th- thankfully, well, as we'll discuss throughout the series, where it has its up and down moments, and we will discuss all of those as we go throughout the series, in my opinion, oh, it was an overall success. And you can see why of all the actors from the Buffy universe, I would say David has had the most consistent career. Because if you think about this is a man who ever since he started on Buffy has been almost nonstop leading role. Because after Angel went off the air, almost immediately he did Bones, which ran for approximately 10 years, I believe. And then when that show went off the air, and now he's doing the new show, Seal Team, which he's also the lead in. So this is a man who has been working steadily since the 90s, nonstop, out, even more so than any of the other actors, Sarah, Anthony Stewart Head, or even Allison, who hasn't really been doing much the past couple of years by choice or whatever, but hasn't been doing too much. And then Anthony's been doing more supporting roles like in Ted Lasso and Bridgerton and stuff like that, but no lead roles. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think he does a lot of stage stuff, but... Oh, yeah. Hold on, I'm not... Most, oh no, no, for sure, for sure. Um, well, what's what's amazing about David Boreanaz is like I think he had like one credit to his name prior to being on Buffy, which was just like one Married of Kelly's, with children. Yes, exactly. Where he played and, Kelly Bundy's boyfriend in an episode. It also worth watching to see how, even though he has the same type of hair and he's wearing a leather jacket. He looks so dorky in that episode because he's a lot skinnier as opposed to when he started even doing Buffy and he filled out more. Well, it's it's funny you say like about his appearance because they they actually lampshade that in the first episode of Angel where 
he he in real life david boreanis was discovered just like he was walking his dog and they're like hey mm-hmm. you're handsome you should be a an actor and he's like yeah okay and in the first episode of angel they do something similar where the the man who i think has a reoccurring role as an agent later in the series yes. Um, comes up to him and is like, yeah, you're handsome. This isn't a come on. But, you know, I'm your agent if you want to be an actor. Love the whole thing. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that is what is remarkable, as you said, because he started off, you know, just with Married with Children. And then now he did try doing at least one movie. I'm not sure if he did any others. It was a horror movie called Valentine. Not that good of a movie. It's not one I would recommend seeking out unless you're a david boreanis completist but in terms of tv work he has been very successful because seal team has been going on for several years now and as far as i know it is a successful show on cbs i've never watched it but from what i understand it is a very successful show and it sounds like it sounds like a cbs show like i don't know the premise of it just reminds me a lot of like the ncis type you know From what I understand, it's very similar to that, where it's very episodic and has a decent-sized supporting cast to back up the lead actor. Anyways, that's why I stuck with Angel all the way throughout the series. Next up is Firefly. Firefly was Joss's third series and aired for just one season in 2002 through 2003. The show was set 500 years in the future and was a combination of Western and science fiction. It was about a crew on board a small spacecraft that took whatever jobs, no matter how questionable or legal, in order to make a living. Starring in the series were a number of actors who appeared in other Joss Whedon works, including Angel. They included Nathan Fillion as Captain Malcolm Reynolds, Gina Torres, who later played Jasmine, as first mate Zoe, Alan Tudyk as pilot Hobin Wash Washburn, Anna Baldwin, who later played Hamilton in the fifth season of Angel, as Mercenary Jane, and Summer Glau, who earlier had appeared in the episode Waiting in the Wings in Angel, as a fugitive with very special abilities and needed to be protected by the crew of the ship's serenity. Like his other works, the show was a mixture of drama and light humor with typical Whedon-esque lines such as, I swear by my pretty floral bonnet, I will end you. What was your opinion of Firefly? So Firefly was actually my very first Whedon show. I was just out of college and this guy I was dating was like, oh, you like fantasy sci-fi? You have to watch this. And so he came over and we watched the first episode together and he left his DVDs at my apartment and I just like binged the whole thing without him. Like, I'm just like, oh, sorry, Jeff. I watched it without you this past week. So I'll rewatch it with you because it was really good. Um, yeah, it got me. And and I'm one of probably, well, maybe not anymore because a lot of people have watched it in the real time order. But I, I was able to watch it in the order in which it was supposed to be viewed right. because I watched it all on the DVDs and whatnot, which I probably enhanced the experience a little bit. But the line that got me was right at the beginning, the curse your sudden but inevitable betrayal. <laughs> Very Whedon-esque yeah. line. Yes. Well, and there's a character like Wash in almost every Whedon show. You have uh, Topher from Dollhouse. You have mm-hmm. uh, Xander from Buffy. I guess not as much from Angel. They're they're all funny, but no one's like that the Jester. Same. Yes, exactly. But Wash, Wash is one of my favorite characters 
Zoe and Wash is my favorite couple in all of Whedonverse. I just, I love the whole friends as family theme, the quippy mm-hmm. dialogue, and the expectation subversions. Like, these are supposed to be good guys that you're rooting for. And back right. then, good guys that you were rooting for didn't kill people. They knocked them out and left them tied up somewhere. And at the end of the first episode, after all of the other shenanigans go down and the undercover cop is holding, I think it's Kaylee by gunpoint and Mal, not even aware of what's going on in the situation. Cause he just got done with his shootout walks in without a second's pause, shoots the cop. And then <laughs> Jane and Zoe just like, without even having to be directed, just like throw him off the ship as they're like getting up in the air. And it's like, Oh, Okay, so th- this show, this show is just gonna kill people, and it's like nothing. And not that I mean, obviously that guy was had no love lost for me, but oh, no. it was just a delightful little expectation subversion. Like the good guys will do morally gray things, and they're gonna do whatever it takes to survive. They won't betray each other, but everybody else is fair game. For me, it was a similar scene because I was a big fan of the show as well. I forget which episode it was. I think it might have been the train robbery episode where at the end, he pulls in one of the bad guy henchmen. He's in front of the ship. Mal says to him, now I want you to ask him a question. The guy refuses to with that. Mal just casually kicks him into the engine, killing him instantly. With that, he pulls the second guy out and says, okay, now I'm going to ask this once. And the guy says, okay, I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll do it. Yep. And it was that same attitude of, once again, Mal, even though he's the hero quasi of the show, but as you said, he's willing to do bad guy things without mis- without losing any sleep over it. And, but as you said, with the exception of defending his family, in which actually in the movie Serenity, they covered that as well in after the first attack where when it was River might have died. And with that, Mal says, and I would have been absolutely heartbroken over it. And he says it's so nonplussed. Deadpan. Yep. Yeah, in which you know he's lying about that, and he's making it very clear that he's just mocking that line. And that's what I always liked about that was the subverting of it, of taking bad guy characters and making them the protagonists of the show. So you're still rooting for them, even though they're not technically heroes of the show, but, but they, you're still they, rooting for them. But And they tow that line of a moral code, because even in that same episode, the, the train job that you were referencing where he kicked the bad guy into the, the engine or whatever, he wasn't willing to let innocent people who were dying from a disease, you know, steal their medicine. And so it's like, he's he's got a code and, and he wasn't going to just kill the bad guy for no reason. He's not malicious, despite his name. He, he just, you know, he will kill if he has to. And that, you know, is such a compelling character. And, and I would say he's more Angel than Buffy, because Buffy is just yes. a hero, hero with a capital H. Correct. And, and Angel, he's got these shades of gray, which are so interesting. And like, the more I watch Angel, the more I like him. Because mm-hmm. um, like I had said in it before, Angel did not appeal to me in my first run through of Buffy. I mean, he was fine for what he was. I, yes. I never, I never disliked him, but I was like, 
really a whole show about this guy? I mean, like, <laughs> how much Tai Chi can we really watch? True. And and a lot of what I knew about it was that he was so handsome. I had a, there was definitely a fervent following of him right from the get go, but it took me a while. But it's like one of those things where like a fermented beer that like people acquire a taste for. It's right. like once you do acquire a taste for Angel. There's so much depth and nuance and juicy character details that you can't help but be compelled. Yeah. Now for Firefly, the, for the performances, what was really attracting me was, first of all, Nathan Fillion, who has proven to be Joss Whedon's muse because he has been in so many of his works, both movies as well as TV. And he adapts himself very effortlessly to Whedon's style of writing and dialogue. He can deliver it almost better than anyone else with a, just enough mocking in, in it to make it fun, but without ever looking like he's winking at the camera. And that's what I always liked about Nathan. And you then, know, yeah. sorry, originally... He was considering Nicholas Brendan for the role of Mal. That but- I cannot see ever working. Nothing against oh. Nikki, but because what works with Nathan is he's almost like a mock Han Solo. And yes. which is how he's played, because he's he's even more of a scoundrel than Han was. And you needed someone who is, first of all, strong and rugged looking, which is the appeal of Nathan. He is strong and rugged, but yet he still comes across as a bit of a dork with his line delivery in there. That's what gives the character that charm where, okay, he's strong, good looking, but yeah, he's also a dork as well. Now, the other person that, and I've liked him in, almost everything I've seen him in is Adam Baldwin. And what is interesting with Adam is I have seen him in Chuck, in Firefly, and in Angel. In all three of them, he has played a different type of character because the character of Casey in the TV series Chuck is this very, very conservative, but very capable CIA agent who is an expert marksman is really, really, really good at his job. In the role of angels, we'll see when we get to season five, he's very smooth, silky looking, and also very good, but pure evil, but very smooth in his delivery. And then in Firefly, he's a dumb lug. Yeah. But as I said, all three characters are uniquely different, and Adam finds the right way of playing them. So in all three cases... You're intrigued, at the very least intrigued by him. I would say the actor for me is Alan Tudyk. I mean... That that was going to be my third one. Alan Tudyk is incapable of doing anything wrong. He has been wonderful in a number of Disney and Pixar films. And then also in Dollhouse, he came in as one of the dolls, Alpha. And as we'll mention in a little bit when we get to Dollhouse, that was when that series picked up, was when they introduced him, because it was that key episode called Alpha that turned that show around temporarily. As I said, I'm a huge fan of his. And then in in Firefly, as Walsh, he was really, really good. And for me also, I love the dialogue. And when they did the movie, I mentioned earlier about good movies based on good TV series, this was an example of it, where this was a good movie based on it, and in fact, it caught me automatically from the beginning when they had this line. This landing is going to get pretty interesting. Define interesting. Oh God, oh God, we're all going to die? And that (laughs) was the line that won me over, because once again, that's a very Whedon-esque line 
on oh, there. Sure. And Whedon write in very distinctive fashions, and certain actors such as Nathan and Alan are good at delivering those lines. Now, unfortunately, as fans of the show, we'll always wonder is what season two would have been like, because as we'll discuss for Angel, and it was true for Buffy as well, Joss usually doesn't start finding his feet until the second season, because Buffy, while decent in season one, it wasn't until season two when they introduced Spike, having Angel go bad and become Angelus, that the show really got strong. And so it makes me wonder what... As good as Firefly season one was, and, and it was very good, makes me wonder what how good season two would have been. Because at that point, Joss would have really have known what he wanted the show to be like and where to go with it. So we could only wonder what all he could have done with the characters at that point. Moving on from Firefly, it would be his next work, Dr. Horrible's Sing-Along Blog, which as a side note before discuss it. For those who are not familiar with it, just the origin of that show was this was made during the writer's strike in which they were striking because they wanted residuals for other streaming services and other media that was not in their guild contracts. And so they went on strike and under the rules of the guild, they were not allowed to write for movies or TV. So a lot of series that season got shortened because like the TV series Lost was shown by three or four episodes, at least, because the strike happened, so they had to end it early. And other Also sh- attribute the strike to the rise of reality TV. Actually, that is very much what happened, because that was not covered by the Guild, because it didn't really have, quote, writers, per se, so that... And it was cheap to do that. They could do those episodes very easily. Now, what Joss did, because he is... He got bored... He saw a loophole, said, oh, wait a minute, I can't write for movies or television, okay, under Guild membership. It didn't say I couldn't create a web show. That was not covered. And so he decided to make this little tiny, it's ultimately a one-hour movie, but he chopped it up into three 20-minute segments starring Neil Patrick Harris, Felicia Day, and Nathan Fillion once again. And in fact, in an interview, they had commented the fact that when Nathan was called by Jaws, Jaws said, Nathan, I have a role for you. Before you even describe what the role was, Nathan said, I'll do it. <laughs> Blind. I mean, it didn't matter what the character was, I'll do it. That's how much faith he had in Jaws. And so when that came out, was a musical that he had written for this, where it had all original songs about a man who wanted to join the evil League of Evil, <laughs> ran by an uber villain named Bad Horse. And he's being opposed at all times, also in his quest to win the heart of a young girl, played by Felicia Day, but he's opposed by another superhero named Captain Hammer, who, (laughs) as Nathan described in an interview, has no powers that we could see actually on screen other than he leaps into screen. (laughs) And he does that very well because he commented in an interview, I leap into camera, I leap out of camera. That's all I do. That's my superpower. (laughs) And it, as I said, it had all original songs. This was done after he had done the classic Buffy episode once more with filming. So he had gotten very familiar with writing original songs for it. And 
Now, what did you think of Dr. Horrible and the experiment, in essence, that he did? So I watched that within a year's time of having seen Firefly. Basically, when I first met my husband, I had mentioned to him that I was a Firefly fan. And he's like, oh, you like Firefly? Then you'll definitely like this. And he sent me the link to Dr. Horrible's sing-along blog, which probably in no small part made me like my husband even more <laughs> when we first started dating. So I'm like, oh, this guy's got good taste. I like off-brand humor. I didn't know that I liked Neil Patrick Harris as much as I do, but I've basically liked everything I've seen him in since. And I'm a big theater nerd. I like musicals. So like, it caught me. And I didn't even know title says sing-along blog, but I had no idea that that was what I was even getting into. So he's doing his more. And I'm like, okay, so this is just like some random web video. Okay, okay. And then like, it's like, goes into, with my freeze ray, I will stop the world. I'm like, oh, this is catchy. Mm-hmm. Um, And N- Neil Patrick Harris plays the longing for a girl thing so well like i i feel for him on how i met your mother when he's pining after robin and yes. you know in this when he's just like all bumbly and awkward and just looking for felicia day i'm like yes and you almost are rooting for his evil machinations because he's just so damn charismatic and you can't help but like him. So yeah, I was, I was a fan and Nathan Fillion, like you said, is, is fantastic. I mean, my, my husband and I will often quote the, the hammer is my penis. Like, (laughs) It's, it's just, it cracks me up. And, and just like speaking of things popping in screen, there's uh, a line where Nathan Fillion's like talking about wanting to sleep with the same girl twice because they let them do the weird stuff. And then his little trio of fans pop into screen and they're like, we do the weird stuff. And I'm like, oh, like, it's just such delightful little pops of unexpectedness throughout. And then you get to the end and I was not expecting the ending that we got. And no. I was just, and, and that's something that Whedon does so well is mm-hmm. he, he can, he can make you laugh and then he can rip your heart out. Agreed. When I had first heard about, it, because I was a fan of Neil Patrick Harris from his work in the Harold and Kumar movies where he played, well, NPH. I mean, yes. that was his character's name. Neil Patrick Harris. And I was a big fan of his work in How I Met Your Mother. So when they said they were doing this movie, I said, oh, okay. And I was also a big fan of Once More Feeling and all the quality of the songs that were in there that I said, okay. And I'm a big theater nerd as well. So I said, okay, this looks interesting. And I was apparently not the only one who was excited about it because when the first episode came out, it came out over a three-week period, 20 minutes each week. When the first one came out, it crashed the server because everyone was downloading it simultaneously. And it really, yes, oh, it wow. crashed it because everyone logged in almost simultaneously to get at it. And it was that popular. And that's what I really liked about it was also the fact that even it was, you could tell it was made on a very low budget. But the thing is, so that looks intentional. It looks like Josh just. Hey, there's a laundromat. Let's shoot a scene in there. Oh, let's shoot in this back alley on the studio set. They kept everything low budget. Well, for example, like, as I mentioned, Captain Hammer shows no special powers whatsoever. It doesn't show him flying or shooting 
rays out of his eyes or anything like that. No, he just leaps into camera, leaps out of camera. That's literally the extent of his his special powers because it saves on the money, if nothing else, to not have to do any visual effects. And that was the scruffy charm that I really liked about it. Now, you had mentioned about the So They Say song where he mentioned about you can do the weird stuff on the second date. That one also I always liked as well because of the fact that it starts, once again, the subverting of expectations because he's talking about sleeping with her the second time. And for a moment there, he says, they say it's better the second time. Almost see, oh, well, because you know the person better, all that. No, then the next line is because they say you could do the weird stuff. And <laughs> to put the cherry on top of that line is what you had commented was then you, you have the people off camera singing. We do the weird stuff. Now, for me, it was the song Brand New Day, where it that ends act one of the story where it's Dr. Horrible singing about the fact that he wants to, he's going to get at Captain Hammer. It's a brand new day and the sun is high. All the birds are singing that you're gonna die. In fact, the opening lyrics of it became my ringtone. And because I just love the darkness of it on there. And it's always a fun way to wake up hearing it's a brand new day and I'm feeling fine. The birds are singing because you're going to die. (laughs) Fun way to start off your day. Yeah. Nice, nice optimistic tone. Now, one last note before we move on to his next, his next work, which is in regards to Dr. Horrible. For those who are not familiar, this is one of those where I would definitely recommend getting the DVD copy of this because on the DVD, it actually has two commentary tracks. One is a normal one with Jaws, Neil Patrick Harris, Nathan, Felicia, and also the writers, others, and they do a very good job. Jaws does a, as a rule, does very good commentary tracks, very informative, but very interesting to listen to as he describes why he did stuff and how they went about various scenes. So that's good for informational purposes. That's not the reason to get the DVD, though. It's the second commentary track in which it is titled on there as Commentary! Exclamation point. The musical. It is a musical commentary track. And when I say a musical commentary track, it is essentially a mocking or satire of commentary tracks, but it's written as a musical with all new songs written by Joss and sung by the cast members. Because there's one great song about halfway through where Nathan Fillion sings, it's called Better than Neil, where he brags about how he's better than Neil Patrick Harris in all different ways. And then also another song, the opening song, Commentary, is essentially a ultra meta song because Commentary, the song, mocks the songs themselves by saying, by at one point mentioning about how some of Joss's songs have impossible rhyme schemes. And the way the song is written, it has an impossible rhyme scheme in that moment in how (laughs) they do it. So it's Joss mocking himself as he's doing the song. And it is really, really funny. It is available on the DVD. And it's also the only commentary track I've ever heard that you can get from Spotify and Apple iTunes. And so if you haven't heard it, it's worth just listening to it. You don't have to watch the movie as you're doing it because... Most of the time, they're not even referring to what's up on the screen. You can just listen to it on its own and 
the entire cast is really funny, including he brings on one girl who is actually one of the three people who did the we do the real weird stuff. It's the Asian girl, and she sings a song called $10 Solo, which the premise of it is that she gets to do a solo song because she gave Joss Whedon 10 bucks. And so that's why he agreed to let her do a song. And once again, it is really, really funny and clever on there. So it's one I highly recommend to download. One other show I want to discuss is Dollhouse. That was his last regular show that he did. For those not familiar with the show, it, it was set at a company where you had a group of young people whose minds were wiped at every time. They had lost all identity. They were literally became dolls, very passionless, no memories, no personalities whatsoever, no identities at all. And what would happen is they would be hired by wealthy people or some other reason, and they would have another person's personality and memories implanted into them. So they became this. So like in one episode, Eliza, who played the main doll, Echo, she would have the personality of maybe a prudish 1950s style housewife or another episode. She was an old woman who has had a chance in essence to attend her own funeral to see how her family was reacting to it. So on. What did you think of Dollhouse? Um, so I liked it well enough. I basically, <clears throat> I watched Dollhouse after having binged all of Buffy and Angel and was like, okay, I have a hole in my heart and I need to fill it with something. And so I was like, okay, well, I I see that Dollhouse is available, I think, on Hulu. So uh, I watched it and I liked it well enough. It's probably one of my least favorite Whedon shows, though, just because, save for Topher, there's not that same comedic timing. Right. And it doesn't have a lot of the themes that I liked from Firefly, Buffy and Angel, which is the the friends is family theme. And, you know, it's it's a lot of like everybody out for themselves. And it's it, it has a colder, less compassionate feel. Super interesting, like thought experiment of like, basically taking Oz's line from episode where Buffy could hear everybody's thoughts of like, I have my thoughts. My thoughts are me. If Buffy has my thoughts, she contains me. I cease right. to exist. Basically taking huh. that one off joke and turning it into an entire series of like, how much do your memories create who you are right. and, and what is self and what is being and everything. And, you know, just kind of like, giving uh, Eliza Dushku license to play like 20 different characters in one season, which she probably had a lot of fun with. But yeah, it's it's one of those shows where I, I just, I, I liked it. I didn't love it. And, and there was something that reminded me of um, another popular fantasy show, which is Battlestar Galactica, which by the end, spoilers for Battlestar Galactica, but most of the significant characters were surprise secret Cylons. And there was like a similar theme in Dollhouse where you have Victor and you have, um, I forget the other character's name, but she was the one who's- Sierra. 
Uh, oh, I was going to say the the one who was dating the cop, the neighbor of the cop. Oh, okay. Yeah. And and, and it was just yes. like, surprise, secret doll. And so then it got to the point where it's like, okay, anytime anybody appears on screen, they're either a client or a doll. And there's no in between. And, and then they had the central mystery of who Caroline was, which I never really felt there was a gratifying answer to that. Like... I, yes, we did get to learn she was like an anarchist and she was trying to infiltrate and whatnot. But I guess because we never really learned who she was, I never really cared about what her mission was. I agree. It was out of Joss's shows, definitely the weakest of the four. My main problem with it, unfortunately, was Eliza. Because as good as she was as Faith in Buffy, and she was very good. In that show, as the tough, sort of anti-Buffy, she didn't, at least at that time, she didn't have the chops to truly play different characters like she would be required to. And you could see touching her limits, as it were. I mean, she tried. You could see she was having fun with it, but I never really bought her as the other characters in there. It very, very stilted at times. Now, the person whose performance actually... I gravitated to the most was the person, you, the doll you mentioned, Victor. He was played by a young actor named Enver Korvash, who hasn't really done too much since then. He was he played actually the role of a cop in one scene of Joss's The Avengers. He was a cop near the end. I've seen him a few years ago in an episode of Law & Order SVU that he was quite good in. But it surprised me he never truly got a breakout because in this show, he, on the other hand, was very good because he starts off he was one of those also once again secret dolls that you mentioned where at first he's playing this russian snitch but then we find out he's a doll and then he's also caught on later on to play other types of characters unlike eliza he does a very convincing job in each of the other character roles on there and that made me interested in him now see now i I liked her portrayals of the different dolls. I she was a little bland as Echo, which I guess she was supposed to be. Yeah, they all were. That's the concept. But, well, it was it was one of those things they kept like trying to be like Echo is different, Echo is special, and and Caroline is different, Caroline is special. And like when she was like her basic self, whether it was Caroline or Echo, I was like a little underwhelmed. But I always found her one-off ones to be really fun you know i'm this you know pop star i'm this dominatrix i'm you know these things it they always struck me as entertaining and i liked topher a lot and i like that they humanized topher because he was a very very cartoonish in the beginning and him having like the emotional breakdown realizing what he did to the world. Now, as a note here for the show was the fact that at the show was extremely low rated during its first season. It was, it never won its time. slot. it was usually bottom of the time slot and bottom of the ratings. So it was almost, it was actually a shock. It stayed on for, for an entire season because usually shows like that don't even last an entire season, but that one made it to the end of the first season And everyone just assumed it was going to get canceled due to the ratings. They actually started tearing down the sets 
because they just assumed it until Joss went into the network and convinced them to do a second season for the show. And they said, okay, but you're going to have to do it on a lower budget because you're not getting the ratings to justify the budget that you asked for for this series. And so what he did to prove to them that he could do a show on a lower budget was he filmed an episode that was never intended for public consumption, as it were. It was almost like a new pilot for the show. It was an episode called Epitaph One. And that was probably the episode you were referring to about where Topher is understanding the impact of what he did to the world. Because what this one does is, as I said, it's a standalone episode. It's actually set even more in the future, years after the events of the regular show. And it's dealing with a whole new set of characters. And it has quasi-flashbacks, as it were, to the characters from the regular series. But it's not true flashbacks, meaning clips from the series. It was all new scenes, but they were done as a flashback form. And this was one of Joss Whedon's best works of any series. Buffy, Angel, Firefly. This is one of his best works because it is such a beautifully told Twilight Zone dark mirror type episode where you don't have to have seen the show at all because he established all the characters very ably just within that 48 minutes or 44 minutes of the show. He established who Echo was, who Tover was, so on. And he established the world. And then he ends it on a very haunting note at the end of that episode with a sense of hope, but also a sense of concern as well. And it was one I watched. I said, that's quality storytelling. Because I assume that was the episode you were referring to. Yes. And for the second season, this is where it got off the rails, in my opinion, was it started off strong with some good episodes where he was finding his footing in terms of what the theme of the show would be and all that. But then at the end, it was like all of a sudden they realized the show was getting canceled which surprised me because the ratings were even worse the second season than the first one. So it always makes me wonder, you didn't realize that if the show's ratings dropped even lower than what they had before, that the show was not going to get renewed for a third. But at the end, he did wrap up the series with a series finale, which tied up the storylines. But it crammed together so many plot developments in like three, two episodes where this person got revealed as a villain, this person got revealed. And it was development after development after development. It was so rushed that you were getting overwhelmed by the story. And it didn't feel as smooth as he handled for Angel and Buffy when he wrapped up their storylines. And yes, this was only a two-season show, but still all the same, it was not as gracefully resolved as it could have been. I I would agree with that. I mean, I feel like Buffy and Angel are two of the best finales in any show that I've ever been a fan of. Because honestly... Most of the shows that I have like been a diehard fan of, like Game of Thrones and How I Met mm-hmm. Your Mother, like they for me do not stick the landing, and I end up just like leaving the show, just feeling disappointed after investing all of that time. And Buffy and Angel, they just for their own respective shows. I mean, Buffy 
ending her show with the big hero saving the day and Sunnydale being destroyed. Chef's kiss, perfect ending. And then Mm -hmm. Angel, you know, ending the show with the reinforcing the theme of if, if nothing we do matters, then all that matters is what we do. We're going to continue to fight even when it's fruitless. That whole theme just was encapsulated perfectly for that show. And I almost think, feel like for dollhouse the epitaph one could have been just a better ending than what we ended up getting it just it it, it felt like a no no uh offense to lord of the rings fans out there but it felt like a lord of the rings ending where it just like it kept continuing on and we're like okay 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 but like i'm like checking the time like is this episode over yet because i'm just kind of over it (laughs) I agree because with they did have that tr- their finale, which was called Epitaph Two, because at that point they knew the audiences had seen Epitaph One online, even though, as I said, it was never actually intended to be part of the series. So it was Epitaph Two was done as a sequel to it, and as much as I loved Epitaph One, Epitaph Two was nowhere near its quality, and as you said, it was just item after item and now for the angel will of course when we get to that episode we'll discuss that at length in terms of that one because i would say that is possibly from what i've seen the most divisive discussion point of the interior series angel of the quality of that episode and as i said and as you had mentioned at the very beginning of this podcast that's what let us to first decide to do the podcast was our mutual discussion of the quality of that episode. That's it for this week's episode. We look forward to more discussions like these in the weeks and months to come as we rewatch Angel. In the next episode, we will discuss the following. For 244 years, he brought pain and suffering to the living. Now, faced with an eternity of remorse, he has come to the City of Angels for one last chance at redemption. You want to help yourself? Help them. It's about reaching out to people, showing them that there's hope left in this world. I'm scared, Angel. Any chance that uh, you might be in need of some uh, rescuing? I don't think you're going to pull that trigger. Good call. Every day, he must resist his darkest instincts and fight the evil that remains within him. Charisma Carpenter, Glenn Quinn, and David Boreanaz, Angel. We will begin our retrospective with the pilot episode, City Of, which introduced all of the initial characters, including the first appearance of the law firm that was the main enemy of the series and the basis for our name, Wolfram and Hart. In our episode, we will discuss how well the episode set up the series and the characters, as well as the overall themes of the show. So join us, Stephen and Carrie, for the next episode of Wolfram and Cast. Please leave us a rating and review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast entertainment. But for now, quickly to the Angel Mobile. Away.